When I was a kid, because I loved stories and films, I thought I wanted to be an actor because that's who you kind of see on screen. And then I took acting classes in high school and a little bit in college. And I'm like, nope, this is not for me. But, but I learned from doing it and I appreciate what actors do because I was like, this is hard. Like, I can't even memorize these lines or how to convince people that I'm not Tara, I am so-and-so. That allowed me to learn that appreciation for them, but it wasn't for me, even though as a kid, I thought that was what I wanted to do. All right, you're about to hear my interview with Tara Jabari. She is a expert in media and documentaries. She has her own brand new podcast titled Who Was She? that we really dive into to understand where this podcast is going and more about the theme for this current season. It's super interesting and it's cool to hear her experience. Some of the things that you'll learn about is how you can find inner motivation and really find direction wherever you are in life at any point, uh, especially early on, we talk a lot about advice for young people and how they can kind of follow their passions. It's a really inspiring uh, episode and she's doing amazing work in the podcast space. So be sure to check out that podcast as well. But without further ado, let's get into the show. This is Alex Leonard, host of the Creative Kind podcast and owner of the creative company AL Media. My business specializes in videos, mural paintings, and illustrations. From working as a radio DJ, journalist, illustrator, painter, and now video editor, I've worn many creative hats. So visit alexleonardmedia.com to work together. Tara, thank you so much for at Tara Jabari. Is that how you pronounce? Yes, perfect. Perfect. Teros Jabari, thank you so much for coming to speak with me on the Creative Kind podcast. I appreciate uh, the work that you're doing and I want to acknowledge this this new piece. Uh, and I'm, it's, I'm interested. I have a few questions about it. So we'll dive into that shortly. But yeah, you have a, a history working in, in media, media production, uh, making documentaries yourself, I do believe. And so I'm curious to... To learn more about your latest uh, venture, this podcast that you've started titled, uh, Who Is She? Yes, thank you, Alex. Um, Thank you for having me. Uh, So I studied media production in college. I'm from Chicago. And I graduated in 2011. So it was right around the time of the recession. side note like because we're doing all this during a pandemic a lot of college students from my undergrad and graduate schools are reaching out because they're panicking of what's going to happen for their future and I went I slightly know what you're going through because I graduated during the recession so I could I could relate to that panic but um when I graduated, I worked for a nonprofit in their media audiovisual unit. And they sort of started, um, social media started picking up around that time, and people didn't know what to do with it. So it came to us little newbies who just graduated to figure it out. They're like, here's our Twitter figure out what to do with it. And we're like, okay, um, here's, there's this thing called Instagram, do something with it. Or we're like, okay. Um, so it was a new form of storytelling that was 
entirely experimental. And um, I finished my contract with the nonprofit there. And it's the um, United States Baha'i National Center. And they had another kind of similar um, opportunity in New Zealand for the New Zealand Baha'i National Center. Um, so I applied there. I also, I knew I wanted to live abroad um, for a little bit. I applied to the Peace Corps as well as New Zealand uh, Baha'i National Center and I got into both. And then um, the Peace Corps, I would have worked with children with HIV in Lesotho, um, which was fine. Uh, but in New Zealand, it would have been working as an editor for their audiovisual unit. And they had in New Zealand and the South Pacific, so all over those islands and Australia and stuff, they have a television show called Baha'i on Air for the last 20 plus years. And the founder of it is a, an Emmy Award winning um, editor from Hollywood back in the 1960s and 70s. So I, because that was always my passion, storytelling was my passion. I decided to go to New Zealand um, and I was there. And while I was there, we had, it's their winter, no, sorry. It's our winter, their summer vacation. So it was December and every summer vacation, there is a big conference um, that the Baha'i National Center holds and they have a spe special speaker come. And the special speaker, his, uh, his name is Hartmut Grossman, and he was from, uh, uh, well, he was mixed. He was like Argentinian and German. And, and so he came uh, and flew from, I think he lived in Switzerland. I could be wrong, but he was from coming from Europe to, to speak. And he told us the story of Lydia Zemanoff and Fritz Mako. And um, it was during World War II, um, these two individuals were Baha'is, but they and they were trying to bring unity and save people and stuff. Fritz Mako was a German uh, Baha'i, and at that time, when you were a German young man, you had to serve their army, which was the Nazi party. So he actually was kind of working with the resistance and was sent as a um, ambulance driver or something. So like they would actually have him, instead of him fighting with guns and stuff like that, um, the Nazis would be like, okay, you need to go and transport all these Jews and all sorts of people to the ghettos or to the eventually the concentration camps or something like that. And then what he would actually do is kind of try and sneak them away. And he'd be like, I can't find them. Sorry, they weren't there. They must have gotten away <laughs> kind of thing. So and he was sent to Poland and he tried to find Lydia. He did. And, but she didn't want, they didn't have enough resources to save her whole family. And so she didn't want to leave them behind. And so I was just like listening to this story. And his whole point was just when you want to serve humanity during the immense trials that can happen, there's a, when there, where there's a will, there's a way. And it might not come the way that we thought it would. But uh, so that was his kind of talk. And, so, and I just was fascinated. I was like, this is what movies are made out of. So I learned more about them. Fritz, there's not a lot of information, but there is a biography on Lydia. And so 
this is like 2013, 2014. And since then I've been wanting to share her story. Um, and then I worked with a couple of production companies in America, um, uh, documentaries and stuff. And there were talks, but it's so expensive making anything. Um, it, there's so many players involved uh, and stuff. So when, right before 2020, I decided, I was like, well, this is, this is still like, it's still on my mind. I still have the book. I've read it like 40 times, all sorts of stuff. And I had been producing podcasts since 2015. Um, again, it was like this experimental phase. I got used to it. So I've been always trying to help out with a lot of um, in, you know, small businesses, nonprofits, production companies and stuff. And I really enjoy producing and I really enjoy podcasting. So I thought, well, what if I just do a podcast? It's super cheap, um, but it is hard. It doesn't necessarily mean it's easier. So then lockdown happened and I had no excuse. So I sat down, I contacted the publishers. I got their blessing. I don't technically think you need to, especially if you're not making money off of it. That's a spoiler for people like I'm not making money off of my podcast, but um, I wanted to cover my bases as my father's a lawyer and always thinks worst case scenario. <laughs> so, could, you know, you wanted to check what you have to do. And as I'm continuing with other seasons, I'm preparing for that too, just to let publishers know or let filmmakers know if I used their resources for my podcast, that I will always credit them. Um, so Sorry to cut you off here, but I'm curious. What, what, like you've mentioned um, Baha'i, what like is that is that an ethnicity? Is that a religion? What like what is that? Great I, question. I, I don't what know, and I'm sure others may so, not know as well. Baha'i is technically it, it is a faith. Baha'i faith started in the 1800s in Iran, and it is a religion. It is the second most widely distribu distributed, or like uh, there is basically a Baha'i in every country in the world, except for the Vatican City and North Korea. Um, so it's that's what I mean by second widely distributed, where they're all the first one being Catholicism or Christianity, excuse me, Christianity. Um, and my family come from a Baha'i background. The main beliefs are that we are monotheistic, but that because we are all created from the same source, the name being God, if you want to put it like that, um, that they're, therefore all of the religions, all of these prophets are coming from the same source. So we're kind of a, always progressing as a civilization. So we believe in all the faiths and all the prophets beforehand, and that this is just um, for the most recent time that we're going through. Um, so we use the golden rule as an analogy, is the golden rule analogy that, um, Jesus said, be kind to your neighbor, because that's all you kind of knew. You only knew your area, right? Uh, Muhammad came and said, be kind to your countrymen, because by then we knew a little bit more. It's a thousand years later. And then the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, said, be kind to the world, all of the world's citizens, because now it, by 1864, which is when he founded the faith, we knew, you know, where we were in space, right? We knew about the earth and everything like that. Um, so that is the thing. There's a couple of principles that are also trying 
for it. One is equality between um, men and women. Uh, the analogy of a bird, a bird can't fly without both its wings working, right? So one wing is man, one wing is woman. And if they work together, that's how the bird can fly. So, um, and then the other one is eventually a auxiliary language. So that everyone will have their mother tongue and then a second common tongue so that we can all communicate the best way. We're nowhere near, I think, to that extent. But part of Lydia Zemanoff's story that was interesting is her father, without even knowing about the Baha'i faith, from his own struggles, um, he wanted to, and witnessing so many wars and just prejudice because people couldn't communicate, started the language Esperanto. Uh, he created a whole language that is pretty easy to learn. I've been using it on Duolingo. Um, and she didn't know about the Baha'i faith. She just believed in her father's uh, belief that if we understood each other, we can get to peace a lot faster. And then she learned about the Baha'i faith and became a Baha'i. And that's how I learned about her. Um, so I thought I'll, I thought it was just a really interesting story and I wanted to share more about that. Yeah, it's a it's a super interesting story and the idea of a a universal language, right? And that that can be, you know, a way that people can connect between cultures. And it's it's something that I think it it has a lot of merit how the actualization of how that would take place is, you know, is is a whole other question. Um and and so you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned it's on Duolingo, right? So clearly this is like a pop, you know, this is like well-known. It was growing and it's kind of been not as in the last couple of decades, I would say, but it, it is, I feel like it, more and more people were in, know more about it um, because of the internet. So, yeah. And yeah. And so you mentioned that France didn't know about, about the Baha'i faith. And, and so I'm wondering like, are you kind of one of the first people to draw that connections or or are those connections made uh, kind of in like the wider consciousness and you're, you know, you're continuing to shine a light or is this yeah. like, I, right? I think it's that latter one because, so her father, Dr. Ludwig Zemanoff, grew up right before World War One, in the 1800s um, in Poland. And then he would be with, he was Jewish Lithuanian, there were Russian Jews, there would be Germans, Polish, and because they all had their own language, you got Yiddish, you got German, you got Polish, you got this, um, they would just keep to each other and, and kind of not trust the other person, even though they lived in the same neighborhood. So he was bullied, he was, he saw a lot of prejudice um, not just anti-Semitism, though that was a huge part of it, but he just kept seeing so much hatred because you couldn't understand each other and you wouldn't learn each other's language. And he thought, okay, I don't want to say that Yiddish is the language to go to or German is the language. So I'm going to invent a whole new language. Um, a fun fact that I'm still trying to figure out because I'm not a linguist is that he made it that there is a, um, there's no negative there's the absence of, but no negative of something. So 
that shows like his brain of always trying to think positively. Um, so it, it grew from there. Um, then Lydia, he died and Lydia took over being kind of like the Zemanoff family representative. She traveled through three continents um, between World War I and World War II. Um, may I add a single woman in her 20s and 30s, which we don't hear about often, right? Um, uh, and stuff. So meanwhile, and I think she's kind of, or Esperanto and the Zemanoff family are kind of well known in the Baha'i uh, faith, people who are Baha'is worldwide, because they do, there are Baha'is everywhere. And we do strive for this principle of trying to find a way to communicate. Um, so it start, there is a book by her uh, about her by Wendy Heller. Um, the publishers are a pretty good, um, well-known Baha'i publishing company called George Ronald. They're in, in England uh, and stuff. So, but that was in the eighties and it hadn't been published since the 80s. I found an old copy on Amazon, some used copy. Um, and so when I learned about it, Hartman Grossman actually knew Fritz Mako, sort of, like his parents knew Fritz Mako uh, and told him when he was born, because he was born um, way too young to know during World War II and to remember it, but his family knew the Makos and what their son did and who Lydia was. So then when he came to travel, cause he was a pretty um, well-known Baha'i uh, in the Baha'i community. And so that's why he was asked to come into New Zealand to speak of his 60 years traveling the world as a Baha'i. Um, he is a, he was one of the members of the Universal uh, House of Justice because we don't have a clergy um, but we do have governing bodies that we vote for. Uh, Universal House of Justice is voted every five years. That's a whole story. But he was one of the first when that was established because there was enough Baha'is that we would need some governing body to just kind of help us, um, particularly with international relations too. So he, that's why he was, he's quite well known. He's one of, he was one of the first members. Um, and so he came and spoke and shared this story of Lydia and Fritz. And I had never heard of it. And as I talked to some people, they're like, I kind of heard of Esperanto, but I haven't heard of this, uh, Lydia or Fritz or what happened between the two world wars and all sorts of stuff. So I knew that, but people were intrigued. And so that's why I wanted to share her story again. Cause if I was intrigued and as I started talking to other people, friends, family, people who are not Baha'is, people who, never left their state, let alone their country or anything. It just was interesting. And I'm like, I'm telling you, this is like, you know, like gold mine stuff for, for films that we all love. Right. So I really wanted to share that story. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. So and I feel like I've learned just from listening to the few episodes of the podcast and uh, you do an excellent job in the production of it as well. So, yeah, so I want to acknowledge that and the good work that you're doing. And, you know, I kind of want to, to almost take like a, a step back here and and understand a little bit more where your interest in, in telling stories has come from. 
you know, you mentioned that you have a lot of experience uh, in in doing editing and you, you know your your background in media. Like, what what would you say sparked that interest in media from a young age? I would say that, well, I'm an only child, but I'm a pre- I was always a pretty easygoing child. The way to entertain me was to just leave me in the corner with either the TV or a book. Like stories were my friends were my siblings. If you can't tell I'm a geek. Um, so um, kind of thing. And in and also because I grew up with out a lot of family around. So we didn't have any of my cousins near me. So I was often alone, right? Um, my parents would, you know, their friends who had kids had a little bit older um, children. So I didn't really have a lot of kids my age unless I went to school um, kind of thing. So to do that, I was just drawn to stories and stuff and I just would love it. And also my parents were pretty, uh, I remember like watching my cousin Vinny on TV and the firm and all sorts. And then every once in a while, my parents were like, should we watch like kids movies? They keep talking about like the little mermaid and we're like, okay. Um, or like the the Lion King, I hate it. I hate that damn movie. It is not for children. <laughs> so, so because that came out in 94 and I saw it and I wouldn't leave my dad's side for like weeks on end. I just was convinced something was gonna happen to him. Um, so, but at the same, like they would still let me go watch like The Firm or something like that, which is technically more dramatic and stuff, but um, an adult material, but it wasn't as traumatizing as watching a father die in front of his son. Um, but <laughs> so I kind of had this wide range of storytelling, being told stories, right? So, and also because my family came from Iran to the United States, we had multicultural ones. And as I got older, you know, my oldest friends. One is from first grade and she's from Philippine, the Philippines. Um, one is from fifth grade and her family is several generations American, but her mother's from Scandinavia, her father's from Italy um, and is atheist. Um, I have friends who are, you know, Hindus coming from mostly India or Nepal uh, kind of thing. So I got to, and I really was intrigued by different cultures and just the commonality was that we liked to share history or lessons through the power of storytelling. So I really liked that. And that was one of the reasons why I also love to travel and to get a taste of what is it like to be from here. Um, so I, I always liked that. And so when I decided, when I went to college, I was like, well, I wanna be able to, to do that somehow. So my degree is called electronic media, which made me sound a lot fancier, like an engineer, but I'm not. <laughs> but it was to know how to produce, write, and edit mostly news stories. Um, but my parents were very, um, they were supportive, but they said, you know, if you go to like an art school, you're kind of limited. Try and be sort of like a jack of all trades kind of thing because nothing in life is certain and rightly so like again during the recession a lot of things went wrong there's the thought process of knowing and being really good in a niche which is true um 
but we also, you know, get a whole encompassing look of a field that you're interested. Like even in medical school, um, a lot of my friends are nurses, for instance, and they were like, we had to go into each department. One was in the psychiatric ward for two months, and then she went to the maternity ward and then so forth and so forth until she found her niche. So in that thought process, my parents were like, you know, learn how to film, use a camera, learn how to do audio, learn how to edit, learn how to produce, learn how to write, and then figure out where you like it. So would you say that your parents were very supportive of your interest then and your creative passions in the media? Yeah, I think my parents were and are very supportive, but they're also very realistic, right? If you just want to do one Yeah. So they were always like, great. I remember when it came down to finding a college, for instance, um, that you could go to a film school, you could do art school, you could do a traditional college or university. And we would go to the campus visits and my parents went, okay, so, and my dad, I remember would talk to some of the students like while we were just waiting for something, you know, he'd go and to, you know, cause like all the people who are working at the cafeteria or something are all students. And he was like, what are you studying? And how do you like it? And have you had internships or something like that to get an idea of what comes after? Um, and so afterwards he's like, you know, I spoke with the people at the film school or the art school and they're very, very concentrated on this one area. Like one was just studying cameras He knew everything about cameras, which is okay, but you're very limiting yourself. Um, But then if you went to, and then he and I went to, with my mother to a couple other colleges and they're like, even if you get, eventually I started in the communications department um, and they're like, well, if you get, you know, that's why they say English degree is pretty, you can do whatever you want with an English degree kind of thing. That's why a lot of people get it sort of stuff. And he's like, there's a thought process to it um, that I think at 18 year old years old, if you sign up and you just learn about cameras or you just learn about audio, you're limiting yourself at 18 years old to 22 to the, you know, so go to a college that has a pretty all encompassing look you know, go for different internships and stuff like that. And then that is the best way, I think, to get to what you really want to do. And even if you learned that you're not a fan of it, then you didn't waste time and money on a very specific thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I guess a follow up to that would be, do you have any advice to someone who say, doesn't have say a strong role model in their life or something like that right who who isn't sure what they want to go or what they want to study I mean we talked about keeping your options open and not being too too pigeonholed in your skill set um but if they don't even know what that skill set is and you know maybe you know they've lost touch with with that guardian what kind of what advice would you give to someone in a similar position to that um I, especially now with such an uncertain time, the day of like working for a company for 40, 50 years with 401k and all sorts of stuff is like pretty much disappeared. I, I can count in one hand people at my age that have been able to do that. Um, so keeping your options kind of open, 
I, I remember this is something that Tina Fey says in her book, Bossy Pants. She's like, say yes to everything. Better to have the options than not, right? They're like, you know, come to, particularly now because it's virtual, what, what's it gonna hurt you? You know, just budget your time a little bit and try not to get Zoom fatigue. But if there's like, come to this talk about clown school <laughs> or, you know, and then come to this school about learning how to bank or investments. And then all like, what does that have to do with anything? Keep your options open and come with an open mind, especially if you don't have a lot of, like you said, role models or mentors to help you. Um, then you'll find a group you'll see, like, for instance, when I was a kid, because I loved stories and films, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, cause that's who you kind of see on screen. Right. And then I took acting classes in high school and a little bit in college. And I'm like, Nope, this is not for me. <laughs> so, um, but, but I learned from doing it and I appreciate what actors do because I was like, this is hard. Like I can't even memorize these lines or how to convince people that I'm not Tara. I am so-and-so right. Like that allowed me to learn that appreciation for them. Um, but it wasn't for me, even though as a kid, I thought that was what I wanted to do. Cause that's all I knew. Like, that's what you see kind of thing. Um, so if you're not sure in what field you want to be in or something, that's okay. And also when it comes to education, I found that it's never too late to go to school. Um, you don't necessarily, like when I decided to grow to graduate school, it's super expensive. It can be, especially if you're going to the United States, which is where I ended up going. Um, but when I spoke with people from who had high school degrees to PhDs and everything in between, the one thing I noticed was anyone who went for higher education never regretted it, even though they're still trying to pay off student loans or something. Uh, my father, for example, went to law school in his late 40s. His 50th birthday was his graduation to law school, right? So it's never too late. You can always switch. They always use like Vera Wang didn't design her first wedding dress till she was 40 or 50 or something like that. You know what I mean? So it's never too late. Keep an open mind. And also when you go to, I, I like going to places or to events, hopefully in person, but even in these virtual events, you hear from other people's experiences and you can see how you can get along. Do people kind of get you or something like you might connect to people and keep an open mind because then you might find a mentor that way. Um, I'm a board member of the Women in Film and Video of Washington, D.C. And there was an idea to or request that we have a like a board for mentorships so that we would organize people to mentors. This was the first year, like 2020, 2021 was the first year we kind of did that. So I became a board member for that. And we got everyone to fill out forms and we were just trying to partner them up, mentor with mentee. It was a challenge and we're like, and we don't know if it'll work, but we, we know that that is an important thing. And all you have to do is ask and try. Um, and so far so good, <laughs> but it's, it's good to, to find it like the editor that I learned a lot from, uh, in New Zealand, he was like, hey, you're, you're learning as an editor, but you're really talented as a producer, finding the story, getting people together. Um, 
kind of thing. And he always, he's like, do you ever notice who wins the Oscar for best picture? It's the producers because they got everyone together. I was like, huh, thanks. And it was true. I'm not a techie person to really get into. Like I have friends who are super nerds on cameras and they're like, did you see the new editing software? of Avid. Oh, it's so cool. And I was like, Ooh, it, it, I, I can appreciate it, but it doesn't get me so excited. But when I hear a story and I'm like, do, do people know about this? Like, I like getting the word out. I like getting people together and, and learning from that. So I, in a way, I feel like my niche is producing the most out of everything else, but I enjoy all the different aspects. Did I answer your question or did I went on a tangent? No, that was that was good. I think I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think that was really valuable. And uh, it it reminds me of something like what you were saying there um, that I heard Jay Shetty say, which was uh, to to leave all doors, never close a door. Right. Your idea of always say yes and the power of mentorships. Uh, and so his point was, don't don't close doors in life. Let doors close themselves on you. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because yeah. sometimes they won't work out, and that's fine. But yeah, I really like that quote. I was like, you know what? Like, that's really really powerful. So, kind of coming close to wrapping things up here, a few a few final questions for you, Tara. Um, uh, firstly, where can people listen to the podcast? So, how can people find the podcast if they want to learn more about Linda's story? Um, you know, as an advocate, as as you know, a young female traveling across three continents, uh, teaching. Um, the language was Esperito? Esperanto. Esperanto. And so, yeah, so t- if they want to learn more about Linda teaching Esperanto, uh, where can they listen to your podcast and where can they connect with you directly if they have questions afterwards? Uh, thank you. So um, the podcast is available on most platforms. Um, my host is Acast, but we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Google, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then I have an Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Who Was She Podcast. Uh, so that's really easy, and I'll have the links, or you know, you can reach us out that way. Um, and then for me, I'm on almost everything. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Tara underscore Jabari, um, and. Yeah, and I have a website, tarajabari.wordpress.com because I'm cheap and I never paid for it. How do you spell Jabari? Uh, so it's T-A-R-A-J-A-B-B-A-R-I. So there you go. Awesome. And so the so last question here for you, uh, Tara, is what what does creativity mean to you? Um, for me, it's when you're thinking... I don't know if this really answers your question, but to me, it's like when you're kind of bored or don't know what to do, even to solve a problem, the creativity bug in you could be the thing that kind of saves you from insanity kind of thing. If you're bored, you're like thinking of a story you heard or what what would I do? Like, let me write a story in my head or if I have a problem to solve, the, the way to solve it or possible ways to solve it is that creativity bug. So that's what I would think. Creativity kind of saves you from um, bad situations or undesirable situations. 
It's an, it's an interesting uh, answer and one I haven't heard yet, but yeah, it, it can kind of be that lifeboat, right? Yeah. It's, it's that way that it's the aha, it's the light bulb. Exactly. When you're, when you're in this rut. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Tara, for your time today and for sharing all this interesting information with us and more about your own personal stories. I've, I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. I learned a lot, um, you know, outside of just film and advice, but also about the history of Linda uh, and about, you know, this dominant religion. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. I just want to acknowledge all the great work you're doing. Keep it up and I look forward to staying in contact with you. Yes, thank you for uh, letting me come on and share. My pleasure. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for listening to my episode with Tara Jabari. Thank you so much, Tara, for coming on to the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and give me a rating wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. It would appreciate it if you can give me a rating on Apple Podcasts if you're listening. If not, just keep on listening. Every week you're going to hear amazing new artists coming to you speaking about what's going on. Next week you're going to hear Bruno. He is a color grader based in Brazil. Super excited to hear from his experience. Color grading is something I've been really passionate about for a while, ever since taking Denver Riddles Color Grading Academy. I can't recommend that course enough. Honestly, I should get that guy on the podcast. That would be awesome to speak to as well. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned. Thanks so much, Tara, for listening in and as always, I hope everyone's been enjoying season three of the Creative Kind podcast. We're really diving into the world of TV and film and video. This is Alex Leonard, host of the Creative Kind podcast and owner of the creative company AL Media. My business specializes in videos, mural paintings, and illustrations. From working as a radio DJ, journalist, illustrator, painter, and now video editor, I've worn many creative hats. So visit alexleonardmedia.com to work together.